Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this episode, I talked with San Francisco City and County Treasure Tax Collector, Jose Cisneros. He was appointed by then Mayor Newsom in 2005 and currently serving in his fifth term. He's the only LGBTQ person to hold one of the city's seven elected executive positions and is the city's longest serving openly gay elected official. We talked about the role of Treasurer and its work around economic empowerment, including a first-of-its-kind effort to right-size city fees and fines, and a wildly successful kindergarten to college program that has resulted in $11 million in savings for San Francisco's poorest residents. We also talked about his path from the private sector to the public sector to elected office, and how serving on a border commission is a great way to get involved. Hope you enjoy. All right, Jose Cisneros, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's so fun to talk to you. And I guess I just want to start out by, as I mentioned in our intro, that you are the treasurer for the city and county of San Francisco. So for our listeners who do not know what that means, what is a city and county treasurer? Thank you very much. That's a good question. And it's pretty straightforward, I will say. The treasurer in San Francisco is an elected position. I'm thrilled to have the role and I'm proud of the work we do in the office. So I basically like to describe the job by talking a little bit about the full breadth of what we do. And really the full title of the office and the department is the treasurer and tax collector. Because I don't want to leave the tax collector part out. I sometimes find that's what makes us the most popular, right? In fact, and probably the bulk of the work we do is in the tax collector side of our uh, job description. We collect on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco over 180 different types of taxes and fees. So we bring in, honestly, millions of payments each year for these taxes. The amount of money we collect in the course of all that is nearly half the city's $14 billion annual budget, city county budget. So we're talking the billions and billions of dollars of revenue that we bring into the city. It takes a lot of work. Fortunately, we've got great staff here in the office. We've developed really great systems to manage all that, to be able to be responsive. And I'm really proud of the work we did, particularly during the pandemic, when the mayor and our city leaders, our city supervisors, really wanted to reach out and cushion the hardship, particularly that small businesses were feeling. So they worked with us and we pushed out, we delayed the due dates for many, many, many of the taxes and fees that they, particularly small businesses were required to pay so that they would have time to get back up on their feet right before we were hitting them with a tax deadline. That was something we were able to do and be highly responsive for. And I know that it helped a lot of, of our businesses survive through that difficult time. So as I said, that's the tax collector side of it. 
The treasurer side of it is also uh, pretty straightforward. Once we bring in all that money to the city, that revenue, and we combine it with all the other revenue that the city gets, you know, from the federal government, the state government, anywhere else it gets its revenue from, we are in charge of holding on to that money, investing it, and keeping it safe. So we manage what's called the city county's short-term portfolio. It is all the money that is short-term. And I like to think of it as the money you and I might have in our checking accounts. It's not the money in our our 401ks and our IRAs, our 20-year or our college savings accounts for the kids or whatever. It is the short-term money. It's the money we keep in our checking account to pay our bills in the next six to nine to 12 months. That's the money we take care of for the city here. And our portfolio, our average daily balance on that is running around between 14 and $15 billion. So as you can imagine, that's a pretty serious role as well. That's pretty much the description of what we do in the treasurer's office. I, like I said, I'm proud of the work we do here. The money we bring in allows the city and county to do the great work it does and provide the services we do and the transit and the healthcare and the safety and security and all that. And we're very key in making sure that can continue. Yeah, that's so great. Thanks for that. It's really helpful. You mentioned the pandemic. You know, you've been treasurer for a while. You've been treasurer through a recession, through the pandemic, and now in the kind of this era we're in with the high inflation. So I'm kind of curious, like what lessons have you learned in terms of governing during tough financial times? Does that look different than other times? Boy, that's a really great question. I will absolutely say yes. That depending upon what's going on in the economy, the city, just like everybody else, has to react, has to engage, has to plan and frankly spend differently than it would at other times. You're right. I have been treasurer for a long time. This year, it's going to be 18 years as treasurer here in San Francisco. So yes, that does cover not only our pandemic years of late, but also the Great Recession, as I think we're calling it from... 08, 09, and 10, and that time. And I will tell you, I have seen many years where the city's annual budget required budget cuts from each and every department of the city, because just like everybody else, we had less revenue coming in, less money to spend, while at the same time, as we all experienced, costs were continuing to rise, healthcare costs, salaries, things like that, you name it. And so we had to find a way to survive. Because remember, local governments, and I believe this is true pretty universally, we can't borrow like uh, states and federal governments can. So we can only, we have to pass a balanced budget every year and live according to that budget. We can only spend what we bring in each year. So that makes for some very, very careful planning and careful spending and the management of spending. It has been very difficult. I will say that particularly the local governments and even states were highly benefited by the great work the federal government did to help ease the financial stresses during the pandemic. It has made this manageable compared to something that probably would have been almost impossible to deal with. So thank goodness for that. Thanks to the great federal leaders that made that happen. And we have, you know, at least the opportunity to plan now and build a strong future and hopefully manage for whatever comes next, even if it is another recession, which we've certainly been through before. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope not. But I hear you. And that's super interesting, actually. And thanks for reminding folks about the unique circumstances that local governments work operate under as opposed to the feds and to the states. I think that's really important for people to, to understand. And you talked about kind of you do this money management. You can also 
makes a big impact in individual people's lives. And you have a number of programs that do just that. And I want to talk in particular about the Financial Justice Project, which I think is its first of its kind in the country, where you are leading an effort, as I understand it, to look at and reform fees and fines that particularly impact your city's low-income residents and communities of color. Tell us a little bit about that and what you're hoping to accomplish and how it's going so far. I would love to tell you about that. And I can't say enough about it because it's really, really exciting work and it's the right work for our local government. And frankly, I would say every local government to be doing. But let me start with a little bit of background. Ever since I've been treasurer, we've launched a number of programs, particularly around financial empowerment programs, we call them. Our goal is not just to provide financial education out there, but rather to maybe help create a better financial environment, a better financial landscape, steer people, even walk people towards a better financial product and away from predatory ones. Some examples of that work were our, one of our very first programs called Bank on San Francisco. It was just a messaging program to help unbanked folks, largely low-income folks, no surprise, to get connected to a bank and a bank account at a credit union to avoid using a check casher. If someone takes every paycheck they get to a check casher, they pay fees that add up to five, six, or $700 a year. And I think we know that a checking account doesn't have to cost that much. So why should the poorest people in our community be paying that? We were very successful in moving thousands of folks from being unbanked to bank. We followed that with other programs to, again, help people with their finances, empower them to be more successful, and particularly steer them away from predatory actors, not just check cashers, but even worse, these payday lenders, all legal companies, but nevertheless, very predatory, very costly, and by and large, just preying on the poorest people in our community, which is, you know, just increases the harm incredibly. And so that work has been really something that's been going on for over a dozen years now, particularly here and in a number of other cities. But with that experience, what we particularly wanted to look at, and this started about four or five years ago, was, wait a second, where our own local government, city, county, fines and fees potentially, possibly being predatory or harmful to low-income people in our community? And frankly, it's kind of logical. Anytime we have a fine or a fee that's $1 amount for everybody, and I have to confess in San Francisco, those dollar amounts for our fines and fees can get pretty high. A parking ticket here, I think, starts between like $70 and $100 for a simple, you know, your meter ran out of time. A moving violation can be in the hundreds of dollars. If you park in the wrong place and you miss the, you know, so the cars will be towed at you know, starting at three or four o'clock to move the rush hour traffic through. Getting your car towed in San Francisco and having to go retrieve it, even if you do it immediately, not even accumulating, you know, those daily storage fee extra charges, it's nearly $500 to retrieve your car after getting towed. Well, the truth of the matter is $500 impacts a low-income individual or family far differently than a medium income or particularly a high-income family, right? And what we found is that there are many low-income families that if they happen to get their car towed, they just couldn't afford to get it back. So they gave up the car. Well, what happens then? If a wage earner in that family, you needed that car to go to work, does that person now risk losing their job? And if that person loses their job, can they continue to pay their rent? So do they now end up losing a place to live? Is there any way that any of us would imagine that parking in the wrong place and causing your car to get towed should result in a family becoming homeless. 
I don't think so. I think that is probably the most egregious example of where something we're doing could have an outsized impact. And certainly, I think, fit the definition of the term of something that would be predatory because it's that incredibly damaging. So what is the answer? What is the solution to that kind of unfairness as it truly is? And what we landed on was for many of these one-size-fits-all fines or fees or whatever, you know, whatever consequence this was for breaking a rule or doing something else, we probably need to find a way to right-size that penalty dollar amount, right? And if you're truly low income, $500 is probably not the right size for the cost to get your car back. So first, what we did was we worked with the parts of the local government that handled that whole operation, happened to be our MTA, great partners in this work. And the first thing we tried was, well, what if we cut that in half? What if it's just 250 instead of 500? We tried that for a while. We made it easily available to folks who got their cars towed. We made sure that they were aware of it. And what we found is it wasn't even enough. And now we've gone down to $100. If someone's truly low income, and we also actually by virtue of the fact we're both a city and a county. So we administer things that counties administer, like food stamps programs and other types of public assistance. So we actually created a very easy and quick mechanism that allows the people at the tow lot, for example, to be able to go online, check a database, and just verify when somebody says, hey, I'm low income, for example, I'm on a food stamps program, they can verify that and then make the change in the cost to retrieve the car. And so we found that to be highly successful and the right thing to do. And I think that's the most stark example of, you know, we were being very predatory in a way, unfair, oversized impacts for low-income families compared to others. And we found a way to adjust it so that there's still a consequence if you break the rule, right? Cars do need to be towed. We do need to clear the way so there's not traffic jams and blockages. But at the same time, if there's a consequence to breaking a rule or breaking a law, if it's financial, let's make sure it's the right size so everybody feels it more or less the same way, learns that lesson, pays for that consequence, but is able to move on and is not impacted in a predatory way. That's so great. And you've been doing this for a few years, you've said. So you've already seen the impact of this, presumably. And I mean, what's the feedback you're getting? What are you seeing? Well, first and foremost, let's think about what did people expect, particularly here in the local government, right? This was a very interesting conversation to have because as we were going to these various departments, and I can talk about many, many different examples, not just the towed car price. But as we went to talk to them, we said, you know, we're really concerned that you're being predatory. And I'll tell you, you know, it's hard for someone not to get defensive, right? What do you mean I'm predatory? I'm just doing what we've done for not only years, but for decades. I'm doing a service that's the right thing to do. I'm making sure people follow the rules. But when we explain it just the way you and I just talked about, then people really begin to understand. They're like, oh my gosh, how can we do that? So then they start being really open to ideas for how we might change. But then naturally, and this is very natural, they go to, well, wait, if I'm not going to, people aren't going to pay $500 to get their car back. And I built a budget around everybody paying $500. And now some people pay less, maybe far less. What does that do to my budget? And by the way, my budget pays for things like my staff salaries and you know this and that, blah, blah, blah. And again, remember, we all have to balance our budgets here at local government. So what does that mean? Well, that's an absolute valid part of the conversation. And we have worked through that. Now, 
Let's remember that each year we set this, as I said, this balanced budget where we can only spend what we plan on bringing in. But we all know that every budget that gets passed, no matter who does it, a company, a government, wherever, it's just our best guess, right? It is obviously going to not be 100% accurate. It's going to be wrong. So we're always kind of readjusting and reaccommodating and keeping an eye on what's coming in and what's going out. Well, it's that kind of flexibility that we take advantage of when we adjust a department's budget to do things like lower the cost for low-income folks for one fine or fee or another. So that's an interesting thing that we had to work through to your point of what did we find out? We found out that we had to work with departments, engage with their budgets, with the citywide, countywide budget management folks as well, think about where we could backfill if that's what it was going to take. But we had actually had something very interesting come up as well. There was one area, I believe it was in the area of parking tickets, where I said some of our parking tickets are easily $100 or more. There's parking tickets here that can be two or $300. Again, we put the same mechanism in place. If someone's low income shows up in the database with easy way to verify that, they got their parking ticket costs reduced, maybe by half, maybe more. What they found was that not only did that not damage the revenue that was coming in from parking tickets for that period, but in fact, because many of those people who now had these lower cost parking tickets were now able to afford to pay it, more of them actually paid. And in some cases, the revenue actually went up because more people were being actually able to pay. They want to pay their debts. But if they don't have $300 to pay a $300 parking ticket, then they just, what can they do? They have to walk away. But if it was, you know, $100 or $150, they paid. And in fact, in some small cases, we saw revenues go up. Now, certainly that's not true in every case, but I think it's just impossible to predict how this is going to work. And I think, again, the idea of right-sizing things not just makes sense from a fairness side, it can actually make sense from kind of a financial side too, because it might be saying, we're implementing things in the ways that make the most sense and it becomes the way that leads us to the most success. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. I want to make sure I get a chance to mention one other program that I'm excited about for you. It's a longstanding one and I'm excited about it because it's from a New Deal perspective, because so many New Deal leaders across the country have taken the idea and run with it. And it's really happening all over the place, which is your college savings program, which you've been doing for 11 years, you and then Mayor Newsom put in place. And I think you hit a really big milestone in the spring in terms of investment. So tell us what that was about and the success you've had there. Oh, thank you for asking. Boy, it is really a wonderful program. And I think it's, it's my favorite and a lot of people's favorites. There was research that showed, done many years ago, that showed that if a child grows up with a college savings account in the child's name, just the existence of that account builds aspirations, starts a dialogue about college. Hey, look, this is your college savings account. Oh, why is that there? Because you're going to go to college someday or at least have the opportunity to. We're already putting money aside for it. That starts up. Fact of the matter is what research showed that for a lot of low-income families whose parents may have not have even gone to college or certainly are at least currently low-income, many of them never get around to opening up a college savings account for their child. And that conversation doesn't happen as naturally. And so all sorts of statistics show that far fewer kids from low-income families end up going to and completing college compared to kids from middle-income and high-income families, where there's a much higher percentage that go. So we wanted to see if we could change that paradigm. And what we were learning was that if there's a college savings account in the family for the child, Engagement in that account just 
engaging, going to the bank, putting a deposit into it, actually changes outcomes. And the research showed that if there was a college savings account in a family, it didn't matter how much they saved in the account. It didn't matter the income of the family. Nothing about else mattered except they engaged with the college savings account. But those kids with a college savings account in their childhood were seven times more likely to go to college compared to not having that, which I believe is all based on that conversation not happening starting at an early age that led to upon high school graduation that that student now having full awareness of their opportunity to go on to continue their education and finding some way that they'd be interested in doing that. So based on that research, we like, you're exactly right, now 11 years ago, launched the kindergarten to college program. And we launched it out of the treasurer's office, but it's funded by the budget of the city and county of San Francisco. And what happens each year is we open up a college savings account for each one of our school systems incoming kindergartners. So we have about 4,500 kids that start kindergarten each year. It's not long after the school year starts, we send a letter home to the parents and we say, welcome to your kid's college savings account. Here's your account card right in our letter. We've opened up the account. It's already at a bank right here in town. You can take this account today. No paperwork, no signatures, nothing. Go into the bank today. You can start saving immediately. And by the way, we put $50 in that account just so your kid has some money saved for their college education. What's exciting about what we've done is we've reached out to all the children in our school district, which I think no surprise, like most urban school districts, is primarily kids from low-income families. The wealthiest families are not you know, sending their kids to our public schools, again, much like many other places. So we're finding a way to reach those largely kids from low-income families and get them at least an opportunity to start saving and engaging with this account that we've opened up and start at least talking about and thinking, hopefully, about aspirations for college. To date, we've had, I think it's nearly 25% of the families that we've opened up accounts for have started to save, which is great. Honestly, I wish it was higher, but I think that's higher than the national average of kids in this country with college savings accounts that they have engaged in their childhood. So I'm pretty happy about that. What I'm really excited about is to date, now 11 years later, the families that are saving have saved $11 million for their kids' college education. And two-thirds of that money was money placed there by the families themselves. Only one-third came from the city's program. So I'm very, very proud of the fact that we found a way to even get the poorest families in our city to save for their kids' college education. And I'm excited about the fact that that means there's thousands of conversations about college and post-high school education that are happening that may not have otherwise happened. Stay tuned. Since we've had this program for now 11, almost 12 years, that means that next year, next year's high school seniors will be our first cohort of K to C savers that are graduating from high school. So we're really excited about that, that threshold coming up in a very short amount of time. We did celebrate our 10-year anniversary just earlier this year. We were a little late on the 10-year timeline because of the pandemic, but we, we celebrated it after 11 years. But nevertheless, uh, we had a great celebration. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom came to the celebration, and we really celebrated. Had a lot of families and family savers, student savers there talking about what a difference it made for them. I'm very excited about it, about the program, and thank yeah. you for asking about it. You're absolutely right. I think now... A dozen or a few dozen places around the country, both cities and states, by the way, that have started automatic college savings programs 
for the kids in their jurisdictions. And I think it's just wonderful. It is wonderful. And those are $11 million is a huge milestone. Congratulations. And that statistic you said about seven times more likely to go to college is, I mean, that's just, you know, what more do you need to say, right? That's an exactly, amazing, right? <laughs> that's right. pretty much says it all. Yeah, that's really crazy. If we could find anything that makes a sevenfold improvement, gosh, jump on it, right? Jump I on mean, it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so interested about, you have a really interesting path into public service, right? You went, to, uh, which is, as you know, this is an honorable profession. And we love to talk about kind of people's journeys into service. You got your BS at MIT and then started out in the private sector, IBM, Lotus Development Corp, Bank of Boston, and then eventually made your way before you were in elected office to public service through the Muni, right, in San Francisco, which is your bus and metro system. Did you think you would go into public service at some point? Or was that kind of a fluke? Or how did you get from the private sector to public service? I think most of my life was governed by flukes. So that's the best kind of life, I think, personally. I was going to be fully honest. I think it's all been by chance or opportunity or happenstance. But anyway, you're exactly right. I went to college at MIT. I got a bachelor's degree from the Sloan School of Business there. My first job out of MIT was at the largest bank in town, which at that time was called Bank of Boston. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a great opportunity for me. It's nothing like working for a bank to learn ins and outs of finance and economics and the way money works and the way money makes the world work. And that type of thing. I decided banking wasn't going to be my life's goal. So I did move back to technology where I was at Lotus Development, which then got bought by IBM. So some pretty sizable technology companies, which gave me great experience and great opportunities. One of the opportunities I had during that time was the opportunity to take a job that was located here in San Francisco. So that's what moved us here 25 years ago. And I'm thrilled that I did move here because once I got here, I made some friends and some of them were characters in this industry called local government. And so lo and behold, as I got to know more people in local government, I shifted, I think, from being one of those people that really didn't think much about, spend much time thinking about or learning about local government to someone that did finally do that. And as a result, I got the opportunity to become known about some of the things local government does. And actually, before hiring on as an employee at your correct at the Municipal Transportation Agency here in San Francisco, I actually started engaging with local government by being on boards and commissions. So I don't know if most people know this, but nearly every department in a local city or county will have likely a commission or something like that that acts pretty much like, I think what we all think of like a board of directors for a nonprofit does. People volunteer, five, six, seven, or more people volunteer to comprise this commission. They may or may not even get paid. If they do get paid, I promise you it's not very much. It's like a stipend. And they meet probably a couple times a month. They make policy decisions and managerial decisions for that department, which then do have to go further up the chain to be further approved. They're not the final, final say, but they have a key role in managing and structuring and guiding the work of an actual part of our local city government, which to me, when I got that opportunity, I was actually placed, well, five or more years before I started working for the city, I was on one commission. And then in the year 2000, I got moved on to the board of directors for our transportation agency, the municipal MTA. And these were huge learning opportunities for me. I just loved it. It was really exciting to see how the things that surround us every day, whether it's that subway line that we ride or the bus or, uh, you know, looking at how things happen in our community, really learning how they happen 
how they come to be, how they're budgeted for and managed, how labor gets involved and all that. It was eye-opening and exciting for me. And that's what got me to think about and when it was time for my next job change. I decided not only would I look at you know private sector opportunities, but I'd look at things in the city government as well. And the best opportunity that came along was to uh, take a managerial position working for the head of the whole municipal transportation agency, our transit system here, and managing long-range planning and government and long-range financial planning and financial budgets and capital planning. And I really enjoyed that. And that's what I was doing when, again, ah, that then-Mayor Gavin Newsom decided that he needed someone to be treasurer because the previous treasurer had taken another position. And he appointed me to be treasurer, which began my now current career and afforded me the opportunity to then run for office to keep the job. So I think the answer to your question is I've had the opportunity to work both in the private sector and the public sector. I find that it's been beneficial to have the experience of both because I think it really gives me a lot of clarity and I'm really happy of how and the way it worked out. But to answer you, no, it wasn't really planned. It was not planned. It was not. That's okay. Like I said, I love the... There was no master plan at work here. Best ways, right? Take advantage of opportunities as they come along. I think that's right. And how have you liked being an elected official, which is, you know, different than the switch just from public to private, but now you, you know, your bosses are the public, your bosses are the taxpayers. How do you enjoy the public uh, official life? I gotta say, I truly love it. Now, I will say... That being an elected official, that not all elected officials are the same. What most people think of, and this is the right way people should think about it, when most people think of elected officials, they not only think about presidents and senators and all that, but even if they get down to local government, they think about mayors of towns or whatever. They think about city council members. And those are the people they should think about because those are the people that set policy, right? They're the people that the electors should go to and say, I think we should have this, or I think we should do that or whatever, because those are the folks that set policy. However, and so those elected officials get a lot of visibility, a lot of, well, I'm not sure you can call it popularity because not every decision that they make are ones that people like. So they also get a lot of criticism too. But nevertheless, they're very much in the spotlight. and They're very known. There's a lot of public awareness about who they are and what they do. There are other types of elected officials, things like the treasurer, the assessor, the city attorney, the sheriff, and they vary from local government to local government. But we don't have, we're not in policymaking positions. We are implementing whatever the rules, largely rules codified in actual local laws or even state laws or beyond that tell us what we need to do. So when I, a minute ago, when I was talking about taxes, We have no discretion to decide whose taxes we collect or don't. We collect everybody's taxes and we collect every tax that's in the law and so on and so on. So there's really not, I think it's not a role that gives us a lot of public awareness, even though it is, you know, in many ways, as I talked about earlier, a very critical and important role for the local government. I have to confess, it's being a different type of elected official than, say, being the mayor or the supervisor, or the city council member who are highly visible, get talked to or criticized all the time. For us, we're very much further off the radar screen, but we still have to run for office. So that's a very unique experience. And I'm very happy to have had that experience now a number of times. It's a whole different way of engaging with the public, engaging with the world, learning how to be able to represent yourself and lay out ideas and answer questions. It's a wonderful experience. When I've tried to explain it to people who've never been through running for office, I say that a lot of the meetings you go to and the conversations you engage in, it's a combination of trying to 
like try out to be in a play and also go through a round of speed dating. It's kind of a little bit of both those things. You really don't know what you're going to be facing with or what you're actually shooting for, though you have a general idea, but the questions can come out of anywhere. So who knows? And it's all over in a couple of minutes every time you talk to someone. So yeah, I love that explanation. I'm going to use that when people ask me about what it's like to run for office. I've got the guy who can give you that answer. (laughs) (laughs) I am just so grateful for you for coming on an honorable profession and telling us a little bit about what you do there and the great work you're doing. Thank you for really, you've you got all of these amazing, I, we've been promoting, as you know, the College Savings Council for a long time. I'm adding the fees and fines assessment to my list of things that I'm telling local government they should be looking at. So just, you know, thanks for all the work you're doing and thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. It was really a lot of fun and I love to talk about this stuff. Be happy to do it every time. Let me know when you need me to come back. I will do. Fair enough. Thanks so much, Treasurer. All right. Thanks Take a lot. Care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.